I'm Sasha Sagan, and this is Strange Customs. The creatures on the planet, you know, the one I'm always going on about, organize themselves into groups. Sometimes just a few, sometimes many millions, even a billion occasionally. Within the groups, they must decide which actions are acceptable and which are not. The consequences for not staying within the parameters for their actions are rarely applied evenly. They change from region to region. When one parameter of behavior is not abided by, the repercussions vary. Sometimes there are none at all. In the most extreme cases, it can result in the creature no longer being allowed to exist. They have rituals for deciding if a parameter was broken and if there will be a repercussion. They have rituals for deciding what the parameters will be. In some regions, one creature or a few creatures are specially chosen to decide based on what the other members of their species communicate to them. The creatures are (laughs) not always reliable, which makes this very difficult. They make this ritual very serious in order to encourage them to be more reliable. They have costumes and formal promises, special words, and sometimes it works. Sometimes they find out what actually happened. Hi, Andrew. Um, I feel a little bit like we should be talking about Halloween because your new book, American Crusade about the situation in the Supreme Court is so terrifying that um, it could really be like um, a horror story. Today, I'm talking to Andrew L. Seidel, constitutional attorney and critically acclaimed author of The Founding Myth and American Crusade, both very good books. You know, we're in a terrifying spot right now. So... Besides being a superb writer, you are a lawyer, and I'm really curious, there is so much like pomp and circumstance around the way we do legal proceedings and the (laughs) way that we organize ourselves when something goes awry. For starters, how do you explain what you do? You have three little boys. How do you explain what you do like to very small children? How would you describe what the job of the legal system is to someone who's, you know, new on earth. It's so hard to explain because you have to explain the concept of the law, which involves like explaining the concept of society. And we've agreed to, you know, shed the the violence and and horror of, uh, you know, like a Lord of the Flies type situation and agree on these certain rules that we're all going to get to. Then we also disagree about the finer points of those rules. And so you have to have people argue about them in these courts of law. It really is a hard thing to kind of break down, especially like if, if you can't understand basic things like contracts and agreements and meetings of the minds. And I mean, the, the way that I really think of it is lawyers job is to 
really persuade judges. I mean, that's like the most at the most basic level. And judges' and job. Small is, children are very familiar with persuasion. That is a concept that you can <laughs> communicate to them. Mine are fantastic lawyers. I mean, like, like really. Um, uh, I mean, I also the other day somebody told me that um, lawyers are just attack librarians, which is actually my favorite description ever. I mean, really, what we are trying to do is have a society have a group of people that can get together and work through disagreements and friction with discourse instead of violence. I mean, I, I think at, like that is probably the most basic level that you could get at. And that is what the legal system is really meant to do. And then lawyers have a more specific role in the legal system as do judges and, and other folks. Um, and, and, you know, there are, perhaps better ways to set up a legal system than ours. Like our, ours is not really, doesn't really get at truth or even justice a lot of the time. You know, it's an, it, our system is adversarial. Uh, and then judges decide the outcome, which is not always fair at all in our system. What would you, this is maybe also off topic. Um, it's what your show. would you, I mean, <laughs> we'll see, let's see, let's see. Maybe this will be the central arc. Um, like if you were to, magic wand uh how would you set it up differently or what would you take i guess from scratch or anything that's ever existed or exists elsewhere in the world what would you borrow you know with a magic wand to make our system more just it's a really good question i think a lot of the things that are intended to make our system more just have made it more unjust uh, you know, I, I think that legal professionals really tend to get buried under legalese and procedure and judicial philosophy and levels of scrutiny and precedent. Um, I think sometimes we hide behind them. And, and often it's really better to shed all of those trappings and just, just to get back to basics. I mean, really to cut through all the bullshit that lawyers and judges build up around their profession and try to get to the core of an issue. And, you know, I mean, one of the places you see this, which is, I think, the most haunting nowadays in our system is when it comes to death penalty cases. Yeah. And and you will have members of our Supreme Court knowing somebody is actually innocent and going to be executed is not as important as sticking to set procedure. In other words, this person yeah. has been vindicated and did not commit the crime for which we are going to kill them. And, and that matters less than making sure we stop. And, and, and that is that is clearly backwards and clearly the mark of a right. system that has subjugated justice to some other interest. And the part that I think is specifically about the example you give that makes me even more hysterical and irate is that, well, your most recent book is so much about Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. And Christianity is a religion where the founding story is about someone being wrongly executed by the mm -hmm. state. And to have a culture and a system that pretends to lean so much on this religious tradition and to still be executing people at all, but in the example you give specifically when there is no reason to believe that they are guilty of this crime. It just boggles the mind. And it kind of, you know, as we sort of think of the legal system as these rituals and this, you know, there's costumes, right? There are mm -hmm. magic words. There are things oh, that yeah. 
feel so much a part of different traditions that we wouldn't associate necessarily with just the clearest, most straightforward way of getting to the truth or getting to justice. Yeah, I think that is, that's right on the money. There is an enormous focus on tradition, especially at our Supreme Court, that is, I think, deeply problematic in a number of different ways. And there are all these traditions and trappings that build up this myth of the temple of justice with, with nine oracles dressed in their priestly garb, handing down these dictates Perfect. from on high. Yes. You know, I mean, they still give out uh, feather quills to attorneys that argue every day. Do case. they? Uh, yeah, you get these white feather quills. Uh, you get a couple of them. Uh, they're prized possessions right. for attorneys who argue these cases. Um, there, there's this certain sort of Luddite unwillingness to email or to allow cameras into the courtroom. Um, I mean, think of the building itself, right? Like the Supreme Court itself, you know, it harkens back with its marble and its columns and its statues to, to the very roots of law. And, and all of this is meant to add permanency and legitimacy of history and tradition to the court. And it's meant to build up that myth. But in a way, we're seeing that myth turned against us right now. Mm. Like this court is focusing on history and tradition for another reason. It's actually focusing on history and tradition in its opinions. And the ultra-conservative justices genuinely want to drag us back to a time when white conservative Christian men ruled, right? When their rights were the only rights that mattered. What I'm really trying to get at is that the, the United States Supreme Court right now is abusing these myths and traditions and, and its its reputation as a court of law. But I think we actually, at this point, have to stop thinking of it as a court of law and more as a court that is bent on giving political whims the force of law and on converting America into the Christian nation that it was never intended to be. So do you think that the grandeur and sort of antiquity of the building and the solemnness of mm. the, you know, way everything is done and the robes, do you think that that impacts the way when someone goes in there, either as a justice or to argue a case, do you think that that impacts the way that they think about these things? Because there's this emphasis on this very old-fashioned way of approaching things. Oh, absolutely. We have to unshackle our minds from the myth of this Supreme Court as a defender of the downtrodden and as this impartial arbiter of truth and justice. We tend to think of the Supreme Court as the Warren Court, you know, the court that right. gave us Brown versus Board of Education. This is the court of Plessy versus Ferguson and separate is equal, of Dred Scott and fugitive right. slave laws, of trying to suffocate the New Deal in its cradle, of gutting the 14th Amendment with you know, that we won with the blood of so many Americans during the Civil War. This is the court of Japanese internment camps. And now it's the court of Muslim bans and billionaires and corporations and political gerrymandering and vote suppression and of abolishing abortion and reproductive freedom in the name of narrow religious beliefs. If we don't wake up to that reality, I mean, what we're seeing basically is the court reverting to its mean. This is kind of the way it has been. And if we don't wake up to that reality and we keep buying into this myth uh, we're going to have a, a very hard time making any progress for the next generation.
I'm just curious about how much like people's need to have this illusion that things are the way they've always been is part of the resistance to this and how that sort of connects to the way that people, I don't know, as a person who's loves rituals and is all for them, I also don't think that they can be stagnant and they have to change and be a reflection of the needs and hopes and fears presently being experienced. And I just wonder how much like people's fear of change is the barrier here. I, I think it's a huge part of it. And I think there's also this conflation of the nine justices with the institution itself, right. right? Like the number nine is somehow magical. And if you were to change the number, that would politicize the court. That misses two things, which it misses the fact that the point of our institutions are to check right. each other, right? And the court has already been packed. So you have to, that is the problem right now. So we have to have some sort of fix for it. So saying, if we expand the court, that makes the court into a political football. But no, the court is already a political football. How do we fix it? So sort of what we're talking about, it also reminds me of like in your book where you talk about how you're not going to use legal jargon and you're very straightforward without sort of using the language that can often alienate lay people um, from their understanding. <laughs> and it's I, th I wonder how much there's also this element of like, you know, this high priesthood who understand this secret language that, you know, rules over us and can make decisions and, you know, look at the ancient scrolls to see what to do and how much there's sort of like a parallel to that. And then once it becomes a little bit more accessible to more people, some of the power and some of the myth gets washed away. And I just feel like there's a through line here with making it more possible for more people to understand what's going on. It seems to me you're really on a mission to make it more accessible to people who have not devoted their lives to the ancient scrolls. I think that's crucial. And I, again, it goes back to, you know, all of that stuff that we lawyers and legal professionals have built up around our profession that, that we sometimes hide behind. And it makes the public understanding of the law unapproachable for a lot of people. And I, I think that's a huge mistake. Are there any elements of the grandeur of it that you think help? I mean, it certainly is impressive. And that's what it's that's what it's meant to but be. But is that good? I, I don't know that that's good. And I'll, I'll tell you, like, I am coming around more and more to a, uh, I'll go out on a far out oh, good, here, good, to, good, to a, good. Burn Can't down, wait. A, a burn it down <laughs> philosophy. There's a lot that is wrong with our constitution. Uh, the, the few things that the founders really nailed that they got just like absolutely right are the things that make it secular, mm. the things that separate church and state. Like, so, so our constitution was the first to draw power from we the people, not from a deity. That's pretty remarkable with the big, big, big caveat that we the people did not mean all the right. people. But sh shedding power coming from a deity was a huge step. It was the first constitution to uh, separate church and state. I mean, really, it banned religious tests for public office in Article 6 and some of the most clear and emphatic language in the document. So no religious test shall ever be required for any office for public trust under the United States. I mean, no shall ever any. Like, that's very clear 
emphatic language in a document that's that's full of deliberately vague language. And that what still wasn't enough for the, for the framers. They still they said, no, you know, we're, we're going to amend it and we're going to include this amendment that even more clearly separates religion and government. Uh, it says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, you know, guaranteeing two basic human rights to a government that's free from religion and to freedom of religion. I mean, th- those are truly, truly remarkable achievements, not just in, in government, but, but for humanity. But the document is full of other massive problems, including slavery and, yeah. and accommodations of slavery throughout. Um, a lot of the negotiations led to, like, for instance, the Electoral College is a direct result of, of negotiations around slavery, essentially. So, I mean, and, and that is an artifact we are still struggling with and it is helping to enshrine minority rule to this day. And one of the problems that we're facing is essentially a small vocal minority that is watching their demographic power and privilege evaporate and raging against the dying of that privilege. Our constitution may be so flawed in so many respects from the beginning that we do need a reset. Elie Mistal, who uh, wrote a great book called Allow Me to Retort, talks about this. And he, he made such a good point that's so obvious. I'm kind of embarrassed. I never thought of it before. He looked at the South African constitution. When that country overcame apartheid, it didn't add three sentences right. to its constitution right. and then say we're good. Right. And, and that's that's what we did with the right. 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. We added a few sentences and said, all right, everything's good now. Um, they threw it out and they started over. And now they have what is recognized as like one of the finest constitutions that, that we've ever come up with as a species. Being a constitutional attorney who you know, has been steeped in this, this tradition and this history. And, you know, I've been on the front lines fighting these cases for, for more than a decade now. That may be what we actually need. When you have that thought, though, the next, pro- the next step is, okay, well, we still face a problem of, you know, how would we ever get to a situation where we as a society could come up with something that would be better than what we have right now, especially given... Yeah. The, the just divisions that, that we are looking down the barrel of. You sounds to me like you are a member of the high priesthood who is questioning <laughs> and is just coming around just to atheism in in your role as a, as a priest of this of the system of this philosophy that you've spent so much time studying and understanding and explaining and fighting for it's fascinating position you're in don't you think yeah the first sort of time that i felt disenchanted that 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 the scales Mm. you know fell from my eyes and it's it's this really fascinating moment because it was it was the first time that i witnessed the supreme court of the united states which had been built up in my mind to to that that mythical being Mm. it just it altered the facts. It altered reality to reverse engineer a decision. I mean, what you're describing is so parallel to stories of someone who is brought up in a 
devout religion. And all of a sudden, one day, they hear something from someone in a position of great authority that just doesn't make sense, like cannot be explained, you know, in any other way other than it's not true. They've said something that's not true. Someone who's supposed to be infallible, who's supposed to be speaking the word of God or to the ultimate authority on, you know, some important moral question is just not telling the truth. And that being the little crack that eventually leads someone down the road to leaving a religion. I mean, what you're describing is exactly the same kind of story. Yeah, I guess I'm an apostate in that regard. Yeah. And, it, and you know, I mean, it's it's true because the, the end of that road for me is that I transitioned into a new role earlier this year Yeah, where I'm, I'm not a litigator anymore. Because to me, there's no real point in litigating before this court because the law doesn't matter and the facts don't matter to this court. So what I'm investing my time and energy in you know, I guess preaching to the people now, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm trying, right. I'm trying to get this message out to everybody else uh, and to warn them about this danger. So you've hit the nail on the head, Sasha. Okay. So last question. Yeah. When a new religion takes over, a, you know, a group of people is either um, convinced or forced to leave one tradition for another. There are little elements of the holidays and little elements of the belief systems and um, the the myths that carry over because it's too hard to start completely from scratch. If there was some way to convince, you know, all 300 million people in this country. We need a new constitution. What would you take? Small things, large things. What would you take forward into a new system? I got to say, I love we the people. Mm. That that phrase and, and where that phrase came from is is just truly remarkable in the, the, the history and the tradition around it. And it is awful that it did not include everybody, but taking it and redoing it so that it does and 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 there's I mean, there's so much poetry built into those words that power does come from the people and not from a gods. The history of it is is actually fascinating because you know they have the constitutional convention getting together and they're meeting behind closed doors. Nobody knows what's happening. And they elect a committee of five, this committee of style to go and actually like put down the ideas that they've had into writing. That's the committee of style. And the committee of style punts this to one guy, Governor Morris. Governor Morris. I'm not even sure how you say it. His first name is Governor. Um, That's and terrible. And, well, he's like he's like this fascinating, awful character in American history, and and he's the one who writes "We the People," and and he was supposed to be writing "We the States." It was supposed to be an agreement of the states to this constitution, and instead, he he says, "No, we're going to change this to We the People," and kind of does it unilaterally, but then everybody else in the Constitutional Convention ends up agreeing. And to me, that that really is, uh, I think, one of those three words truly are poetic. And again, that we the people means all the people previous generations have, have failed to realize mm. those aspirations and, you know, left it to their children to contend with, you know, human tragedies like slavery and segregation and subjugation of women and discrimination against the LGBTQ people. But I would want to retain those um, and really achieve the aspiration inherent in those three poetic words. 
Well, thank you so much, Andrew. This was such a pleasure talking to you. Um, next time I'm going to have you on to talk about the ritual of the selfie, something else I know <laughs> you're familiar with. Everyone follow him on Instagram if you're not and read his excellent, excellent books, The American Crusade and Founding Myth. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you so much, Sasha. It was a pleasure. Hi, Meredith. I am so excited to be talking to you today. Here with me now is Meredith Rossner, Professor of Criminology at the Australian National University. I mean, I first really want to ask how you found this specific topic to become an expert in about the rituals around courts. It's fascinating. And as soon as I found out that someone studies it, I was like, we have to talk to her urgently. Oh, thank you, Sasha. Yeah, I am like nerdily into the role the ritual plays in, in everyday life. And and I actually came to the study of courts through sort of a sideways route in that I was working in the field of restorative justice, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that's kind of an alternative to court, which brings together victims and offenders of crime to have face-to-face -face dialogue. And it's all about kind of centering emotion <clears throat> and people's stories. And it was really clear to me that like emotions wow. were really, really important um, in those types of meetings. And when I went to go do a PhD in that, I kind of under I started to learn the kind of theoretical backbone of kind of ritual theory and ritual study. And that really helped me understand the dynamics of restorative justice, which are deeply ritualized, full of emotion, all about reconciliation. Mm. But what becomes clear when you think about the rituals of alternative justice processes is that mainstream justice processes are also, you know, extraordinarily ritualized. And we think, you know, the theater of criminal justice, right? It's a theater. And so, um, yeah. That, so that's how I sort of went from outside the courtroom to inside the courtroom and to trying to unpack what is unique about kind of the symbols and the rituals and the procedure of courts. Oh my God, that's so interesting. Okay. So just from the very largest exterior perspective, like the neoclassical style, especially the Supreme Court, how did that come to be? And like, what does that do to our brains when we go into a place where the columns are like feels like hundreds of feet yeah. tall and we're going into this place that is designed to feel ancient? Yeah, absolutely. 100% Greek neoclassical democracy Americans love that, right? Um, and love it is actually it. only Can't American. Get enough. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I actually met an American architect once who designs courts, and he said that he's never been able to like pitch a new court building to anyone in any state in America that doesn't have columns. <laughs> Wow. And that anytime he tries to like pitch an innovative design, they're like, where are the columns? <laughs> like, it's a courthouse, right? How will people know that this is where they go to seek justice if there are not columns? Yeah. And in other countries, like even other former British colonies, like this is not a thing. Like in Canada, no columns. Well, I mean, it's there's certainly colonial buildings which tend to have that kind of Greek style, but there's certainly there's a lot more experimentation with bringing in kind of like celebrity architects to kind of mm. innovate and think about space in, in more creative ways and think about ways Ooh. you can use the materials and the light and the you know the built environment to communicate different messages. Yeah, and Australia I think is a really nice counterpoint to that because there's a real 
recognition that indigenous culture is alive here. And so when you build new spaces, you um, really do need to kind of pay respect to like indigenous ways of moving through space. So that's, I think, something that at least the newer courts in Australia and and also, you know, as a former colony, a real rejection of a colonial style of of buildings. So what does it do? Like, how does it impact the person who is going to be tried or going to bear witness or going to argue a case or who's going to watch and, you know, or be a juror? What does it do to have that sort of aesthetic? Yeah, those are really great questions. And and you can think of it on two levels. I mean, it's clearly about it's a threshold, it's a barrier, right? Like you walk through those pillars, you walk up the right. steps, you know, in a very classic ritual sense, you're moving from like the everyday to the sacred, right? Um, and it's no surprise, mm-hmm. that like they share a lot of similarities with cathedrals and churches and like the, they're these big grand yes. halls where you're going to like seek a higher power. In fact, in French courts, the, you know, really grand entranceways and the lobby in French courtrooms in the, in the big appellate style courtrooms the grand entranceway is, you know, usually a huge place with like marble everywhere, and the re- waiting room is called the Salle de Pas Perdu, which is the the room of lost feet, because like you just hear echoes of of, oh my God. of, um, of <sighs> people's kind of footsteps, and um, yeah, so it's definitely like majesty, right? And it can communicate authority, and it can communicate solemnity, but the important point is that it can also communicate like alienation disempowerment. Yeah. Yeah. And inequity. Absolutely. It's very different for a judge to walk into a building than it is for like a vulnerable witness or a defendant or even a juror to, to walk into a building um, right. and, and, and try to navigate that space. Okay, so even if you've never stepped foot in a courtroom, like just from TV and movies, like you get so familiar with these rituals where it's like all rise and like the robes. I mean, the robes are so weird. And in other parts of the world, wigs. I mean, it's so it would be so strange in any other (laughs) setting, you know, without the context of what is going on. And so I'm curious about like those kinds of things that were like putting your hand on a holy text and making this very serious promise, like all of these sort of rituals, like which are the ones that you think are like most effective and most powerful and which are sort of vestigial? So there's ritual and there's effective ritual, and then there's rituals that are effective for some people and not for others, right? So so it kind of depends on the context. But I think the point that you're making is this idea of like continuity that like we um, and oftentimes we think about these ancient mm-hmm. that were supposed to embody these ancient traditions. And and I think the judge's robe and the wig is the kind of the paradigmatic example of that. And also even this idea, um, you know, like in the common law courtrooms like we have in America and Canada and Australia and New Zealand, um, you know, they're usually made out of we have the idea of the bar. Right. And they're usually made out of wood. And mm-hmm. that comes directly from the kind of oak tree, the ancient oak tree that the king would have sat under a thousand years ago to dispense justice. And that piece of oak becomes mm. like a piece of wood. That's that's the, that's the root of the bar. Like the actual bar is a wooden barrow, which is the French word. And like you approach the bar, it's like this idea of heavy material, like heavy, usually like dark wood, you know, the wood. Yeah. Room. That's like 
you know, this ancient centuries old kind of continuity that is in, in, in the UK, the judge is under a canopy. So a piece of wood sticks out over them. It's actually like a tree effectively. Right. Um, and that's. Oh, my like, God, that's fascinating. <laughs> and so that's literally like goes back a thousand years. Right. And, and so you're and so, you know, you're we had this idea that like we do things because we've always done them and same with the robes, the robes and the wig, like those are straightly straight up borrowed from ecclesiastical kind of, um, you know, religious garments. And it was just like how the priest would wear the robe and then God could kind of, you know, he stops becoming a person and becomes a messenger for God. The judge dons a robe and the judge no longer becomes an individual, but they like embody the power of the King. Right. Um, And that's, yeah. That's the why. That's why judges wear wigs and robes is because they're actually meant to be invisible. They're not meant to be people, which is funny when you think about in the U.S. context how judges are elected, right? <laughs> Where they're very much people, right. their personality becomes really important. In other jurisdictions, it's who they are is not important. It's like what they represent, right? Do you think that all of this sort of regalia makes the participants more resistant to change? And more resistant to modernity because it's like time travel? Mm, That's a really interesting question. Having the Supreme Court justices all together and dressed the same and like using that same really formal language, that really professional language, the lawyers who are, you know, have to be at the top of their game to be able to appear before the Supreme Court can be able to speak in that really highly refined, professionalized language, which is what ordinary people can't understand. So it creates very much of an in-group and there's like an incentive to take, to like remain in that in-group, right? Yeah, I mean it's so the, the the like secret language of legalese is also so much like you know the high priesthood yeah, that the, the the public cannot access and not understand. I tell my students that like I because I go to court a lot, you know, I still do research in court, and I have a PhD in this, and I still can't understand what happens a lot of the time. Wow, that is so. Revealing. That is so revealing. If you, imagine if it's if you're not, you don't have the capital that I have. You don't have, you know, the literacy right. or, or the just familiarity with being around professionals. It's a deeply, deeply disempowering and alienating experience. Coupled with like your life maybe on the line or something, yeah. you know, very yeah. like the stakes are so high and to be so removed from what's yeah. going on is just terrifying. Yeah. So there's examples, for instance, where people get like sentenced to prison, for example, and they don't even realize afterwards what's happened. Because like the way the the language of the court is so formal that like only afterwards will they ask the sheriff or the security guard what just happened and and someone will have to kind of translate for them. And that, you know, um, yeah. That's heartbreaking. Imagining that situation. Hearings happen so fast. It can be over in a minute. Right. You know, like a sentencing hearing could be so quick or a bail hearing or um, and, but you know, before you can even you're brought up from the cells and before you even know what's happening, you're brought back down again. Right. It's it's talk about the ritual. Like it's so right. deeply confusing because what I, I described, you know, coming into a courtroom, the cells down below, nothing like that. <laughs> There's no grandeur in like a in. Yeah. <laughs> in the cells below a right. prison. There's no the dungeon. You know, and and in fact, you know, the corridors of a prison, there's really interesting um, way like issues around circulation because you have to have um, a separate secure 
circulation for judges. They have like the back end, like the backstage where the judges kind of move. And then you have, and also for jurors, because if they're like jurors need to be protected. So those are different from the public hallways. You have the public hallways that like, you know, we'd be familiar walking up and down. And then you have the secure hallways coming up from the cells, which, and all three of those circulation routes can't meet ever. (laughs) And so courts are actually really like hard to um, retrofit as buildings because they have all this weird stuff in the background to like enable the ritual of people to like enter in from different doors at different (gasps) times, Um, you know, to like make this performance in the courtroom. Yes. I've done it a few times, the walk up from cells to the courtroom. It's like you're in a dingy cell you go up a dingy staircase and then all of a sudden you're in a courtroom things are happening people are talking and then you get brought brought back down right so it's um Uh. yeah it's it's a different kind of ritual and what indeed what some scholars have called it are like the rituals of degradation right like the you can you know the critical reading is that this language um the not just the language the procedure the dress everything is um you know excludes you Right. It shows that you're not part right. of of this professional class. Um, and, and so it's right. empowering for the people who can speak it, the lawyers and the judges. Um, but it's like profoundly disempowering for the people who who don't know the language. And that's defendants and that's witnesses, victims and to a lesser extent jurors. So what's the solution? Like, how do we make a more modern, more understandable legal system? How has the pandemic changed how people experience this? In good ways and bad, I think. And even the Supreme Court, they did oral argument over telephone, didn't they? During the pandemic, everyone had to switch overnight. I was pretty impressed with how well people, I mean, you know, justice is one example. Everyone had to do it, but they figured out pretty quickly how to make things work. And because everyone was un- slightly unfamiliar with Zoom in the beginning, um, it meant that even the judges had to, they had to slow down. Yeah. They had to like do a longer introduction or do a bit of scaffolding where they would describe to everyone how the meeting, would, or how the hearing would unfold. You know, they would say, okay, I'm going to ask you a question about this, and then I'm going to ask about this, and then I'm going to turn to this person. And also because on Zoom or on whatever platform you use, you can see people's names at the bottom. The judge, had, it was really subtle, but the judges often have to use people's names when they spoke to them so that you mm-hmm. couldn't just look at someone and speak because you can't necessarily mimic eye contact. Yes. <gasps> Even just people's names being used is like really revolutionary in some courts where a judge would just like ask you a question, you know, didn't have to know. You wouldn't even get, the, you know, respect of having your name called, right? Yeah. And it's a reminder that you're a person if you're the defendant and you're in a situation where you're being so dehumanized. It's underscoring that you are a human being. I think so. So I think and also you can't have the judge on a bench higher than everyone else. Right. Um, You know, this idea of the raised bench and that you have legal professionals have a privileged position at the bar and everyone else is a bit further back. Right. Um, The kind of real estate of the court very much courtrooms, adversarial courtrooms are very much designed to privilege that triangle of the judge and the two opposing Mm -hmm. counsel. But that triangle doesn't fit on a Zoom screen. Right. Everyone's in a box that's the same size. Yeah, gallery view is is more egalitarian, I guess. It's like flattening of hierarchy. So, okay, if you had your total druthers about how to do things, like what very old 
symbols and rituals do you think are useful and effective that you would carry forward? And what would you say, this has got to go immediately? I remember doing this with a group of judges from a bunch of different countries around the world, um, asking them to sit down and design first what their principles are, like what do, what do they want to communicate? And then if those are your values, like working from a principled position, what are the design features that you would kind of envision? And what's really interesting to me, when I do it with judges, when I do it with architects, and when I do it with students, it almost always ends with some idea of justice in the round, some idea. And I we talk mm. about columns and churches, but there's also another ancient justice tradition, which is the circle. And Scandinavian, Celtic, Scottish kind of traditions of stone circles, and actually that being the place where people meet in the round to talk about justice. And, you know, I come mm. from the restorative justice world where people sit in a circle to resolve their conflict, but actually that's like a kind of inversion of that ritual, right? <laughs> in a way. And yeah, which is ancient, but contemporary justice, not just online, but contemporary in person justice innovations often involve recognizing the people that we need to bring lay people into the center that we need to like so oftentimes courts are built with flexible furniture here in Australia there's a real emphasis of having indigenous design principles and that translates into the courtroom too so there's a practice here in different states of indigenous sentencing circles where community elders are invited to sit with the judge on the judge's level mm. in the round with def with indigenous defendants and their family to have a sentencing hearing. So it's a criminal hearing, but it's actually sitting, they actually turn the courtroom into a circle, right? Wow. So what does it say about each society or us as a species, how we take action when someone has broken some rule, something we have made forbidden. If you study ritual and sociology, you always go back to Emile Durkheim, right? And, and Durkheim kind of famously tried to understand like why we come together for ritual. And his argument, you know, in the context of religion is that we come together not because we're worshiping a god, we're coming together to be with each other, right? And that there's something really powerful about like this right. idea of the collective effervescence and the collective conscience and things, and that gets reflected through ritual. And ritual is also a place where boundaries are created, like where we decide the boundaries of our social and moral order are. And so you could think of the criminal trial as a ritual, um, and certainly the punishment and sentencing ritual as a ritual where like we are asserting and reasserting like our moral boundaries again and again and again. And so the purpose of that is not just for the person who's condemned, the person who's sentenced, and not just for right. the judges who are exercising their power, but it's for the people who are watching, right? Yeah, I was going to say, just think of the feeling like the way, I mean, the the landmark criminal trials of our lifetimes, like the things where people have really hung on to find out what's the verdict going to be. And there's huge emotional reactions either outrage or relief, the emotion is clear that it is for the larger group yeah. to to f get some sense of things are okay. Even when someone does something wrong, things are going to be okay. Yeah. It's a, something, a reassurance that we need. I think a recent example of that is the Derek Chauvin, the verdict and sentencing in Minnesota. And that was like, it needed, that news needed to go around the world because everything seems out of whack. Yeah. We needed something that was a really important symbol to show that we were trying to reassert, like rebalance our normative and moral order <laughs> that feels really out of whack. 
you know, this is something that would have been not a conviction for most of American history. The idea that we can get better. There is a moral arc. Yeah. So we think of, yeah, so the trial is the place where like our morality is like communicated, right? And like we think of the trial and the sentencing as like this really important communicative act where we're like asserting who we are as a people. We're asserting what our values are. We're asserting what's important. It doesn't work all the time. Right. Um, but like that's, I think, right. that's like the higher, you might say that's like the holy goal of the ritual. I hope I don't have to go into a courtroom very often in my life, but if I'm ever in one, I'll never think of it the same way. All these little symbols and spells we use to keep each other in line, to keep ourselves in line, to decide where the lines are, and to reckon with what happens when we fall short. So many elaborate rituals to give us an alternative to violence as a rudimentary stand-in for justice. And yet, paradoxically, in prisons around the world, in countries like the United States that still execute people, all too often, the result still is a form of violence. Something to think about, I guess, next time a jury summons arrives in the mail. Thanks so much to Meredith Rossner for joining me and to Andrew Seidel, who's the author of The Founding Myth and American Crusade. Join me next time on Strange Customs when my guests will be actors Katie Lowe's and Adam Shapiro. When you spell it out, like in only the way that Sasha Sagan can, you're like, what are we? This is crazy. Our theme music is by Evgeny Klemenko. Additional music in this episode by Spear Fisher and Blue Dot Sessions. My producer is Dale McGowan. Strange Customs is a production of Only Sky Media. Visit us online at onlysky.media slash strangecustoms. And subscribe to Strange Customs with Sasha Sagan wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next time for more Strange Customs. 